In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And this series is in cooperation with Cinda. And Cinda brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. Now, we don't only bring you thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what this series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, data protection regulations, and leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform. Now, I invite you to connect with me, send me your thoughts to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com or visit my website, leadershipbeyondborders.net. And let me know if you will have something that you want to hear about on this show. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we'll make sure that you take away something useful, either for your business or for yourself. And now on to today's show. You know, I started um, actually when I'm going to introduce our guest in a minute. And our guest got me kind of motivated to read a little bit more about military history. And I was reading a book on the Second World War. And I don't usually swear on my show, but I learned a new slang word, and that was the word goat fuck, okay? Now, apparently goat fuck was military slang that came from the Second World War that indicated something that had gone completely wrong and was unlikely to end up positively. And when I heard this word, I thought about Afghanistan. The withdrawal of troops has brought this slang word back to the 21st century. The withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan proved to be one of the worst goat fucks we have ever seen. And we posed and we talk about that today. And we're going to talk with somebody who's going to help us understand maybe what went wrong from the leadership aspect. And our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Diamond's Leadership and Strategy. Now, since 2000, he has both domestically and internationally conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, governments, nonprofits, and corporations. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of the International Security Division at Dickinson College and a national security consultant 
consultant for CBS Radio and Television. Now, Jeff is also a frequent contributor to Think, which is an op-ed section at NBCNews.com. Now, during his military career, Jeff served in a variety of command and staff positions, both in the United States and Europe, and during the Kosovo crisis, as well as Operations Desert Shield and Storm in Iraq and Kuwait. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger School, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He holds both a master's degree and a PhD from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at from Tufts University. He's also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. So Jeff, welcome back. Cindy, it's great to be, or Kimberly, it's great to be with you today and uh, discuss this particular topic, which I think has enormous application to leaders, regardless of whether they're business, nonprofit, government services, across the board. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, to refer, we've been on, you've been on the show a couple of times and it's great to get your your insights to these things. But before we start uh, talking about the leadership issues in in Afghanistan, um, when this all happened, I have to say myself, I kind of sat down and said, hey, why did we go there in the first place? OK. And, you know, some of our you know, it's been 20 years now, of course, you know, we remember 9-11, remember what happened. But. Um, could you just kind of talk about, from a historical po- point of view, what happened 20 years ago with the decision to go into Afghanistan? Well, of course, the Taliban was the in charge in Afghanistan, and they had been in charge since 1996. The United States had not recognized them as a government. In fact, very few countries, I think three, Pakistan being one, had in fact recognized the Taliban as a government in Afghanistan. Of course, following September 11, 2001, uh, we know that we trace back the planning for that particular terrorist attack to Osama bin Laden, to Al-Qaeda, and to training camps they'd established uh, in Afghanistan. The Bush administration, George Bush administration, which had been in office about 10 months at that point, approached the Taliban, Mullah Omar as the leader of the Taliban, uh, to demand that he turn over Osama bin Laden and his leadership and end uh, support for Al-Qaeda. Uh, the Taliban refused to do that, uh, and the war was on. And in a period of only a few months, uh, we were able to uh, overwhelm that particular government and drive uh, Osama bin Laden uh, back across the mountains of Tora Bora uh, into Pakistan. And of course, I think a couple of things take from that for leaders today. One is the importance of time in retrospect. And of course, retrospect is always crystal clear. One might criticize the Bush administration for moving almost too quickly, perhaps not spending more time <clears throat> diplomatically in negotiating with the Taliban, number one, for the release of, uh, of bin Laden, and number two, in preparation for this particular conflict. And second of all, I think one thing we might want to reflect on is, while we think we uh, won the war at that particular moment, if you were an Afghan, you thought the war was won largely by a group called the Northern Alliance, which had opposed the Taliban and still controlled the northern part of the country, because they were the ones who marched into Kabul, albeit with large American air support and U.S. special operations. And finally, for leaders, I think the one thing you've got to keep in mind is what I call keep the first thing the first thing. You know, Jim Collins talks about that in his new book, uh, B2.0, and he says, you know, organizations will plan things and plan things and plan things, 
they don't perhaps think through what do they do if it succeeds and if it works, sometimes they immediately become distracted by the next bright, shiny object. Uh, and in many ways, I would argue uh, that's what happened in Afghanistan, <clears> that the United States should have more vigorously pursued bin Laden into Pakistan uh, with the support of the Pakistanis or without the support of the Pakistanis and crushed al-Qaeda once and for all. We did not do that. We declared ourselves successful. And by early 2002, the Bush administration was turning its sights towards a second possible conflict, the war in Iraq, and assuming fully that that war would go as quickly and as rapidly as the war in Afghanistan had gone so far. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, you talk about planning, and one one of the the questions I have for you, Jeff, this this spanned over twenty years, okay, and four presidents. So when you talk about you know the Bush administration and then you know planning and passing down, um, we one of the things we confront with leadership is kind of the the transition of power. So is there anything we can learn? about transition of power over this 20 years when it when it goes from one president to other because it was four presidents during this 20 years. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, and, and many people in the military now probably say, you know, we were never in Afghanistan for 20 years. We were actually there for 21 year tours because that was the normal tour for a GI who was deployed to Afghanistan was for one year. We went through multiple military commanders. We went through multiple ambassadors. Uh, across those four different presidents. So some degree of continuity in any organization is critical. And secondly, you have to think about what's your strategic vision? And in retrospect, the real question was, what is it? What are you trying to accomplish? And is that actually realistic? We went into Afghanistan with the vision of destroying Al-Qaeda and its ability to use territory in Afghanistan to train, organize, and equip forces to attack the U.S. or our allies. By the time we'd accomplished that in early 2002, we were now talking about expanding on that to rebuild Afghanistan, to make it into a democracy, to make it into a market economy, and also to uh, really change the culture of Afghanistan in terms of how women were in fact treated. And I think that particular expansion of vision became more than we could manage, also not respecting really how tough culture is to change, you know, oftentimes Uh, Some people will say, you know, culture eats your strategy for lunch every single day. And finally, you know, um, as that strategy became more and more blurred, we seem to fall victim to another comment by a leader many, many centuries ago. You know, Sun Tzu once said, strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. And tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. So by going in 20 years, you know, one year at a time, we were really good at tactics but I think we lost a grip on what our strategy was and how we make that a th- thread of continuity across those four presidents. Mm-hmm. And and that losing that strategy, and um, I'm learning something I didn't know it was one year at a time, um, you know, losing that strategy between the four presidents passing down to each other, is there anything we could have done better, you know, in this transition to, to clarify the strategy? It was kind of passed from one to the other. Um, what can we learn from that? Well, I think we can learn that those transitions, you know, in many, many ways are very, very difficult for a country like the United States. And we're one of the few countries because we're, you know, a federal system and not a parliamentary system where there's not a government in waiting that comes into being. 
uh, you know, the Bush administration after 9-11, um, there was a, a big uh, examination of what went wrong about the terrorist attack of September 11th, 2001. And a couple of the conclusions I think were startling and startling again for any leader. The first was that the Bush administration was still suffering from not having many of its key leaders in position because we go through this rather cumbersome process of confirmation and whatever. So many of the very senior positions in State Department, Department of Defense, uh, were still unfilled at that particular mo moment, even though they were 10 months uh, into that particular administration. Okay, uh, parenthetically, I would add, uh, if you compare that to the Biden administration of today, which is roughly at the same point, about 10 or 11 months into that particular administration, the Biden administration is even farther behind than Bush was in 2001, largely due to uh, failure to name people, number one, and, and slow processing in the United States Senate, hold up by many senators on key, key positions. And the second thing was that the 9-11 Commission report, I thought, uh, told us another very interesting fact, and that is that it was a failure of imagination. The attack on the United States on September 11, 2001 was just that. We couldn't imagine that this could occur. We couldn't imagine that roughly 18 or 19 terrorists could train, come in the United States, learn how to fly airplanes, and conduct this particular terrorist attack against the United States in both New York and Washington, D.C. And in some ways, as we move on to this withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think that was also part of our problem. We mm -hmm. couldn't imagine, we couldn't imagine after 20 years, trillions of dollars of investment in the Afghan government and the Afghan military, that it would dissolve in a period of about six weeks. I mean, don't forget the end of June of this year, uh, President Ghani was in Washington meeting with President Biden uh, in the Oval Office. And barely six weeks later, President Ghani was on an airplane fleeing to, to Doha uh, as he believed that his government was, in fact, collapsing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, and that comes back all to from imagine and culture again, what you just said. Um, so, Jeff, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, um, you know, that that's a good kind of recap of what happened to put everybody in the mind of where we were and what we, you know, why we did this and, and the over, you know, how long it lasted. And when I come back, I really want to talk about, you know, what happened, okay, um, with the withdrawal and, and what can we learn from that. So for our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he has been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops since 2000. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. And he's also the author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. And we interviewed uh, Jeffrey and his co-author Tom a few months ago, so look that up and listen to that. And if you get want to get a hold of Jeffrey, you can get a hold of him on Facebook under Diamond Six Leadership and LinkedIn under Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC, on Twitter under D6 Leadership. And also Jeffrey is on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland and on Twitter under MCCAUS 
LJ. So if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, please do so. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and today we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And we've been talking about, um, actually, the 21st century biggest goat fuck here of the withdrawal of Afghanistan. But before we get into that, um, Jeff, I was reading an article you wrote, and in that article, uh, you quoted... Napoleon on this. And he, you said, you quoted in war, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. And you related that to the entire happenings in Afghanistan. What, what do you mean by that? And, and how does that relate? What I mean by that is, you know, that we had to understand the culture of Afghanistan if we were going to be successful. The old question of, can you win a war for somebody else? And sadly, to me, at my age, uh, I feel like I've seen this movie before because it was the same problem. I think we never really understood the culture of, of Vietnam and what makes soldiers fight and why are they willing to fight. So if you look at it from this, this standpoint, one has to remember <clears throat> that the, the war in Afghanistan, the Taliban, for example, uh, was one of the few insurgencies in the history of war that the people knew what living under the Taliban looked like. They had done that from 1996 to 2001. In most history, insurgents, whether it's the Viet Cong or the Khmer Rouge or the Bosque or the IRA, have never actually been in charge. But over time, people may become disenchanted with the government and then turn to the insurgency. But people knew what the Taliban was like. And I think most Afghans, really, particularly in cities, don't want to live under the, the Taliban. So our goal was to create a government that could be just a little bit better than the Taliban. And we, and we never got there because of massive corruption, underscoring how critical ethics is to a cohesive organization, massive corruption by the Afghan government. So when you, and at the end of the day, as this thing collapsed this past summer, I always like to say if we were now on this call and we had a Taliban soldier on the call and we had an Afghan soldier on the call and we turned to the Taliban soldier and we said, what have you been fighting for? For 20 years you've been fighting, my goodness, what inspired you to do that? Take all that sacrifice over those many, many years. 
Uh, he would say, I believe, the following. First and foremost, I am fighting to defend my religion from the Crusaders. And that's how they described us. Mm -hmm. So defending Islam from Christianity, if you will. And then second of all, he would say, I'm, and I'm freeing my country from foreign occupiers, just as my grandfather did against the Soviet Union and my great-great-grandfather did against the British uh, in the 19th century. That's pretty heady stuff. That's pretty inspirational. If you turn to the Afghan soldier and you say, well, what are you fighting for? He would say, well, I'm fighting for a paycheck if my company commander or my battalion commander doesn't steal the, the, uh, the, the unit uh, salaries, which they do about half the time. And that kind of underscores the corruption that was endemic. And so as this starts to collapse, an Afghan soldier says, why do I want to die for a country and for a government I have no respect for? Well, Taliban were inspired by religion, inspired by nationalism. Moral is the physical is three is to one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Jeff, just a question on that. Um, do you think because of, of this, you know, the reason why the Afghans were, were, were fighting or maybe the reason was not clear to them, is that why there were so many casualties on the Afghan side? More, and I read that in one of your articles, it was like three times more than on the American casualties in the last three years. Does it have to do with this corruption, this lack of, maybe lack of clarity on, on um, reason why they're fighting? To some degree, it probably did in terms of resupply, and there were countless stories of Afghan units being isolated without resupply, without ammunition, without food. Certainly affected the Afghans in terms of things like a medical evacuation, the ability to get a wounded soldier off the battlefield before he, or he uh, expired. And then last but not least, uh, really since about 2014, uh, you know, Barack Obama as president announced the end of the war in Afghanistan for the U.S. in many ways and said that now the main brunt of the fighting would be done by the Afghan military. And that's really been the mm -hmm. focal point for the last six, seven years with the United States providing advisory assistance, providing material support, and then conducting counterterrorism operations, particularly against Al Qaeda remnants or uh, ISIS. And really a critical aspect of that uh, was in fact about 6,000 contractors. You know, at the end, it's really interesting, Kimberly, for every American soldier in Afghanistan, there were probably three contractors who provided critical assistance to the Afghan military for the maintenance of helicopters and other sophisticated pieces of equipment. So back to understanding culture, I think one of our mistakes was we created a military that looked like ours, but for a war that didn't require a military like ours, mm -hmm. and for a, a, an army that was made up of people that just because of education levels, diversity of ethnic groups and tribes, uh, really couldn't manage all that. It wasn't a withdrawal only of U.S. forces, but the withdrawal of those contractors really ended the Afghan Air Force, which was a critical factor in their defeat. Mm -hmm. And that, that drills down to culture again, huh? Doesn't it, Jeff? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So let, let's go to, into what happened this year. So let's information, July, okay? Um, Biden makes a statement on the withdrawal um, uh, based on an analysis that he says he was given from U.S. and intelligence community um, and his administration. What was wrong with this information? Or, you know, is this the passing down, you know, the, the what we talked about, leader to leader? Um, and, and, 
you know, should have decisions been made on that information? Well, of course, these decisions were made by a so-called consensus of the intelligence community. And there are multiple intelligence agencies in the U.S. government. But the baseline assumption, I think, which drove all of this analysis was that once the United States pulled out, that the Afghan government, because we had spent so many years and so much money developing this Afghan military, et cetera, they would, in fact, be able to survive for at least six months, a year or more after the departure of U.S. forces. And we kind of drew, if you will, a metaphor from what had happened when the Soviet Union withdrew. And don't forget, the Soviets also withdrew those forces. And at the time, the Afghan government, supported by the Soviet Union in material ways, managed to survive for almost three years before then leader Najibullah was overcome by the Taliban in 1996, and they actually came to power. So I think that, that, that basic consensus of the intelligence drove the train, if you will. And as, we, as things started to change, we, did, we didn't do what leaders have to do, and that is we have to continually revisit what are our implicit and explicit assumptions and adjust our plan and execution accordingly. You know, we like to say in the military, no plan survives the first round fired. And that certainly was the case uh, in Afghanistan. And then as you see things changing, then you've got to adapt and have branches and sequels that you can move to as conditions change. And finally, don't forget, in any competition, business, sports, or the military, your adversary gets a vote on your strategy. Your adversary gets a vote on your plan because you're dealing with a dynamic environment and not a static environment. And the Taliban, I think, learned their lessons from losing a war uh, back in 2001. And when they came back this time, what did they do? They very methodically, they very methodically developed support, particularly in rural areas, which hadn't changed all that much. They moved very quickly into the north to undermine a key part of the country, which was Tajik which had been a hotbed of opposition to the Taliban when they were in power. And that slow, methodical and adjusting of their strategy, I think, served them well as things progressed throughout the summer. And when you talk about revisiting assumptions, what, what are some of those assumptions that we probably should have revisited? Because there were a few people that were, were you know, advising, um, you know, against a full withdrawal or, or rushing into it. What are some of those assumptions that we had that we, we should have as leaders revisited? Yeah, the first assumption, of course, is the criticality of time. And oh, by the way, I think the Taliban understood time in some ways better than us. In some conversations with them, they would frequently say, don't ever forget you Americans have the watches, we have the time. Because while we called them the Taliban, I often thought we ought to call them the Afghan Taliban, because we sort of, by using the word Taliban, seemed to suggest they were some kind of an alien group that had come from somewhere else. No, no, they were first and foremost Afghans, which gave them uh, uh, enormous uh, credibility. But we thought we had the time. So the first assumption was we have the time, but in this case, we did not have the time. Second of all, I think the assumption that that drove to was therefore we can make adjustments in certain ways on critical infrastructure uh, that we might need. Uh, some would argue, for example, we evacuated from our biggest airbase, Bagram, which is about 40 miles from Kabul, uh, too quickly, and we should have retained that, which would have expedited the eventual withdrawal. Uh, others have pointed out we failed to coordinate our efforts, I think, quite as well as we should have with our NATO allies to making sure very quickly, probably in early summer, 
that we took full control of the uh, Kabul International Airport because once we departed from Bagram, that became unquestionably a crucial lifeline in terms of evacuation. And then finally, port, perhaps a greater coordination with other countries in the region, most notably the Pakistanis, because Pakistan was always a critical actor in what occurred in Afghanistan in terms of success or failure. People would frequently say when I was in Afghanistan, don't forget, we can lose this war in Afghanistan, but we can only win it in Pakistan. And a role for Pakistan in terms of expediting the withdrawal in a better fashion, I think also would have served as well. We still used airlocks or airlines of communications over Pakistan, but did not really exploit it for ground evacuations or for using helicopters to evacuate people onto Pakistani territory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and and I, I, I'm coming back to one question because this, this question is something that always interests me very much um, when it comes to this withdrawal. So we started – we started, you know, back with Obama kind of withdrawing the Americans as, and putting them there as consultants. And then Trump comes in and he ultimately, you know, signs the agreement with the Taliban for full withdrawal. And then Biden comes in and and he actually initiates this. Uh, here again, we have this transition of power, okay? And and you know, not all of them were friends. Obama, Trump, Biden. Okay, was there anything we can learn from? You know, what can leaders do better to transition these things? Yeah, I think that continuity of vision is key and essential. Uh, second of all, we've got to stru- we've got to separate again strategy from tactics. Uh, the strategy was to withdraw, and you know, really uh, that particular strategy there was a threat of continuity. Uh, really through three presidents. Uh, even George W. Bush uh, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't ever intend for the United States to stay as long as any, anywhere near as long as we have. And in fact, when you go all the way back to 2001, the commander at the time, General Tommy Franks, didn't pursue uh, Osama bin Laden into Pakistan because he thought if he was going to do that, he would have to request a, a, a dramatic increase in U.S. military forces in Afghanistan, which then would mean we would end up staying in Afghanistan, ironically, for a longer period of time. So even beginning with Bush, the, the goal was to get out. Um, certainly Obama pursued that, and certainly that was pursued by Donald Trump. And then, of course, Mr. Trump signs this agreement in February of 2020, uh, which called for the United States to withdraw by 1 May, and even shortly before the election in the fall of uh, 2019, would actually send out, or fall of 2020, I should say, uh, would send out a tweet in which he indicated all forces would be out uh, by by Christmas time. So when Joe Biden is inaugurated in January, in many ways, in terms of the policy at least, it's a fait accompli, we're leaving. The tactics of how that occur, of course, had to be worked out, and that's where I think we found an awful lot of failings. Okay, and that and that probably comes back to the planning you talked about before. But we're gonna we're gonna take a, a short break, Jeff. And when we come back, um, I'd really like to talk about looking at this whole thing uh, from a kind of from a big picture and what are really the leadership lessons we can learn from this because I think that's critical leadership lessons that leaders listening to our show can also take into their businesses um, as they go forward and 
you know, what we can learn. So for our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Diamond Six Leadership Strategy. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army, a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. He is also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, you can go to his website under www.diamond6, and that's S-I-X, spelled out, leadership.com. And he is also on social media all over the place. You can reach him on Twitter, under on, on LinkedIn, under Jeffrey Cosland, And he's also on Diamond Six Leadership, and that's six with a number six on Facebook. And on LinkedIn, Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy with a number six. And D6 Leadership on Twitter. So please reach out to him. And with that, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, Jeffrey, what we can really learn from this. Okay. And uh, with that, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking about the whole situation with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and um, really the transition of leadership over the 20 years as we were over there. And we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, who is the owner and founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he is both a domestic and international consultant and leader. And he does executive leadership development workshops all over the world. And uh, Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's also a visiting professor of international security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. So we are very lucky to have you, Jeff. And um, I just want to, let's kind of take a look at this whole situation um, using the Afghan situation first. What what can we learn from this? Um, you know, what are the leadership lessons that come out of this whole, as the word I used before, goat fuck, <laughs> when we left? What can we learn? 
Well, I think there's about five different things we can learn. I'll try to go through them quickly, and then if you want, Kimberly can develop on a bit more. First of all, we've touched on a couple of times, is it's critical when a leader is supervising the execution of a major plan for his or her organization that they continually revisit the assumptions. And President Biden and his team assumed that the government, military, and Afghanistan would remain and survive for several months for a year. That was what they were told by the consensus of our intelligence community. Well, that obviously proved to be untrue. And the leaders have got to be sure as they work their way through a problem that, that they're not making incorrect assumptions and that they have to question the validity of assumptions as we're going along. Uh, otherwise, as the situation changes, we can find ourselves and our organizations uh, caught short. And I think crucially that effective leaders have to recognize oftentimes that they are still operating from an area of ignorance and they will never capture 100 percent of what's going on. So that con continual search for how's it going, what assumptions are valid, what are invalid, what's our competition doing are critical. Second, you have to gather all the data and determine which kind of data is most important. Otherwise, you get buried by data. You know, during the Vietnam War, a general once said, if you don't know what is important to count, you make what you can count important. And if you think about that, that's a, re that's a recipe for uh, groupthink and for disaster. I think too oftentimes our, our reporting focused on what we learned from Kabul, from the major cities of Afghanistan, rather than the countryside. And the countryside, the situation was very different. For the average Afghan living in the countryside, their lives didn't change markedly uh, since 2001. But more and more, the government was totally ineffective in providing what governments do basic services to society. And their failure to do that made the Taliban more and more powerful out in the countryside. We also have to realize that the conditions change for data. Consider the fact that Kabul as a city in 2001, when we arrived, was about 900,000 people. By the time we departed in 2021, it was a city of about 6 million people. And that'll distort information. So gather data, but always question, is this the right data? And what am I gonna do with this data? Thirdly, I think to some degree, you have to give the Biden administration some credit. Uh, they made a decision, which is a policy. The execution, I think, was flawed. But I think to a large degree, the president has owned it. And I think that's what leaders have to do. They have to understand they have authority. And they give out authority to others because they can't do everything. But responsibility rests with them. Fourthly, and most importantly, perhaps of all, is culture. And I don't think we ever fully understood the culture of this very diverse country called Afghanistan, the effects of its religion, of Muslim, of Islam, the diversity of populations, whether it's Hazaras, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Pashtuns, the Taliban being largely Pashtun, but still not a majority. And that affected our ability to be successful in that society. And I don't think we really respected how important that culture was and that each strategy every day. And then last but not least, I think the bedrock of good leadership is ethics and integrity. And there's no doubt about it that the rampant corruption in the Afghan government undermined their ability to have any credibility in the eyes of their population. And that ultimately, I think, contributed to their demise. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, um, let, let me kind of ask a couple of questions on these. And I want to, I want to stay with the one you say and decisions. And I think, I think that, I think that's very, very important um, for leaders, as you said, and you said the Biden administration made a decision, um, but the execution was flawed. And you talked a little bit before about planning. So 
when you make this decision and you're going to execute, how critical is planning and how detailed does that have to be? Well, it's, it's totally critical and it has to be, it has to consider all aspects. You know, one thing I think back to data, your, your decisions are based on data. And so where does the data come from? And you got to be careful because you can be buried by data. So you really got to be very, very thoughtful about what data do I want? What's important and what's just sort of, you know, abstract pieces of information. And from that, what choices we're going to make. Clearly that was true in case of the withdrawal in terms of assumptions as well that the, once again, that the Afghan government would survive. I think longer term though, we, we failed to sort of get a sense of what was really going on. It's just sad and amazing to me if you talk to young officers who served in Afghanistan or people now older who served in Afghanistan in 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 as lieutenants or young captains, but were out at distant places in the country. They would tell you now, we knew we were losing then. We knew we were losing back then because they were out in rural areas and could see that the Taliban was getting strength, that the Afghan government was not delivering. But somehow that feedback loop didn't make its way to the top, while more sophisticated data collection, whether from satellites or drones or human intelligence or intercepts, um, did. So I think at times you got to make sure you get that feedback loop uh, from all the stakeholders. And those stakeholders included our Afghan allies, senior uh, military officers, diplomats, or allies in the region, or NATO allies, but also those who are trying to execute our efforts on the ground. Mm -hmm. and, and Jeff, doesn't that, doesn't that relate back to revisiting assumptions? Because when you were just saying that, I was thinking about, you know, in the business world, when, when startups kind of assume the way their customers act or assume this product's going to be accepted or something, um, we have to revisit that. And you just said something very, very important, and that means bringing the stakeholders into the room. Um, and maybe if we brought those younger soldiers or those soldiers that were actually were feet on the ground over there and listened to it, we would have had reevaluated some of the assumptions. So um, how how can leaders better try to get the voice and, you know, in business, the voice of the customer or the voice of the employee in military, the voice of the feet on the ground? Yeah, I think it's, it has to be a combination of all the exotic things we do in terms of surveys or try to get market you know, indicators uh, from analytical efforts. Uh, but at the same time, one has to get you know, the sense from uh, those in the organization, whether it's customers or it's your staff, what is really going on? You know, you and I both have a German background, you more than I. I always like this great German word, Fingerspitzengefühl, which we used to talk <laughs> about. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, in terms of the military, a sense in your fingertips of what's really going on. Because if you're not careful as a senior leader of an organization, you can get into a bubble where you're getting lots of information, but you're just not getting the information that you need. It doesn't filter up to you. You know, I'm doing some writing today, uh, reflecting on the, on the sad passing of, of General Colin Powell. And I had the a great honor and opportunity to have a private dinner one night with Powell, <clears throat> Uh, at the State Department when he was Secretary of State. And what Powell did, which I thought was fascinating as a senior leader, is about once a quarter, 
his staff would bring in about four or five people from around the country from disparate activities to just have dinner with him and, and talk to him and answer questions that he had as he tried to maintain a sense of what was going on in the country. Because again, you can be inside the Highway 95 Beltway, which surrounds Washington, and be in that bubble, but not, not have a sense of what's going on around the country. And I was fortunate to be one of those four that was uh, selected due to the fact a friend of mine was his chief of staff in policy planning for that kind of a conversation. I just found wow. it fascinating. A senior leader at that, at, at that position would take the time to say, I got to make sure I mean finger spits and gefool. What's mm-hmm. actually going on out there by using that particular effort just as an illustration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, yes, first uh, to the passing of him, um, a, a great man, um, very sad, uh, and great respect for what he did. Um, and and really that you got the chance to talk to him, amazing. That's really amazing. Um, so, Jeff, I just, uh, you know, coming back to, to, you know, this assumption revisiting, one of the other things you talked about I just want to touch on as we get towards the end is time, okay? Because you said time was always important. And, and, leaders, and leaders do have to pay attention to time because, you know, some things can happen too fast, some too slow. So what's your, what's your kind of tip on, for leaders on how they can recognize time and how can they can better manage time? Yeah, two things. One is one has to keep in mind that when you make a decision can be as critical as the decision you make. Uh, So we can go back to, you know, October of 2001. If the Bush administration had taken more time, perhaps, to negotiate with the Taliban and to find a way for them to pass Osama bin Laden to us uh, and get around some of their cultural problems, uh, this whole thing might not have happened. But the same, and he, but he was under a lot of pressure on the other side of that, and looking back on it and trying to learn from that, uh, from the public who really wanted us to make a decision and do something. And he gave that famous speech uh, on the, literally on the rubble of the World Trade Center, saying, "Those who did this are going to hear from us soon." He put down a marker at that moment. I've got to do something quickly. So, when you make a decision, can be as important as the the decision that you make. And then second of all, time is inelastic and you only have so much time, particularly when dealing in multicultural environments. You only have, I think, uh, a fairly brief period of time to make your impact. Uh, I, I remember being in Kosovo one time when I was working on the National Security Council and we were standing on a balcony overlooking the streets of Kosovo. I've only been there a few months. I was working with an American diplomat. I was from the White House. He turned to me. He said, Do you see those people down there? I said, yeah. He said, remember one thing about time. Right now, we are liberators. A year from now, we're going to be obstacles and occupiers. So whatever we're going to do, we've got one year to get it done as we change in their eyes. So when you're dealing in multicultural environments, you got to understand that particular pressure of time, I think, even becomes more important and more critical. Yeah, and it's a very good point. And um, Jeff, with that last point, uh, we're, we are about out of time. Um, do you have one last message for our listeners? This has been extremely valuable and really interesting. Well, I think it's that we can all reflect upon this, and there'll be a lot of efforts now to blame people. But I think that the successful people will be the ones who sit down and reflect on this, think about the you know assumptions, 
think about the use of time, think about multicultural awareness as critical aspects for any organization, and think about that bedrock of ethics as key to leading any organization, all of which certainly affected our failure to be successful in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. And for our listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder of Six Diamond Leadership and Strategy. Um, he conducts executive leadership workshops, both domestically and internationally. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. And he is also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. And... That book is on Amazon, a fantastic read. We also interviewed you and your co-author, Tom, on that book. So you can look up the episodes we talked to Jeffrey about that book. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeff, then please go to www.diamond6leadership.com. And that is six spelled out, S-I-X. Um, then he's also all over social media on Diamond Six Leadership and Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy and D6 Leadership. And on social media, it is six as in the number not spelled out. If you'd like to get Jeff on LinkedIn, he's under Jeffrey McCausland and on Twitter under McCausLJ. Okay. So, Jeff, as as usual, it has been an incredible incredible pleasure to have you and hope to have you again. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you again on the show. And for listeners, thank you for listening. This broadcast has also brought to you by Cinda. Cinda is Europe's largest growing nonprofit digital association. And if you'd like to learn more about Cinda, go to www.cinda.com. And with that, I'll See everybody, hear everybody, tune in to us next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.